so glad that you're with us this morning. My name is Joel, and I'm lead pastor here at Crestmont. And if I haven't met you yet, I'd love to meet you, so hopefully I'll get to today. But especially if you're visiting, we've already extended our welcome, but let me extend it personally. We're glad that you are with us today, and we hope we have the opportunity to get to know you better. Before we go into our sermon, we're going to be in Luke chapter 10 today. So you can turn there in your Bibles or get there on your phones or it will be on the screen behind me. But before uh, we read this morning's passage, it's already been mentioned in today's service, but August at Crestmont for us is going to be a month where we pull back a little bit on our ministry programming. Typically at Crestmont, our uh, ministry calendar, which you can find on our website or you can find on our app, it is very full uh, most of the time. But we're pulling back just a little bit in August so that we can regroup for the fall. 2017 is going to go down in the books at Crestmont as a year of transition and change. It's all been good, but there's been a lot of shifting and moving parts, including some changes on our staff. And our staff is, um, you know, I'm so glad to be able to work with our ministerial staff and I know they just pour their hearts out for you, and so many of you are so encouraging to them, which I appreciate. But we're going to appreciate this month just to take a deep breath and get the work done that we need to so that we can hit um, the fall strong and ready and with some additional changes. And some of those changes you're going to find in September um, will have to do with some of the details that surround our Sunday morning experience together. Not much is going to change here in the worship gathering but some things are going to change surrounding the worship gathering that will just help us to welcome our visitors better. And we'd love for you to get involved in that. As a matter of fact, one easy way to get involved is that we would love to have greeters at our entrances on Sunday mornings. Um, many of you are newer to Crestmont, and even if you're not, you've probably known the experience of visiting another church, and you know that that can be a really uncomfortable experience to walk into a new church building for the first time. And one thing that can kind of release the pressure valve a little bit is just somebody saying hello, right? Now, that's something we can all do, but we want to be intentional about it by putting people at our doors to do that. So if you would like to get involved, this is an easy way to get involved, um, then we'd love for you to let us know. And the person to let know, I'm sorry, I didn't warn you before, is Stephanie Hill. She's a deacon at our church. Stephanie, could you just stand up real quick so everyone could see? So if you want to be a greeter, yeah, let's clap for Stephanie. She's awesome. <laughs> um, and Stephanie right now organizes our ushers as well, which is um, really huge that she does that for us, just attends to those details. So uh, if you would like to be a greeter, um, and maybe you can do it just once a month or once every other month, or maybe I've already had some people come to me and say, Joel, I would do that every week. That's awesome. So please let Stephanie know because it goes a long way in us welcoming our neighbors and friends as they come into our church um, you saw in the announcements, but one of the areas in which we'll have limited programming is in our youth and children's ministries for the month of August. So for August, the children, um, aside from the nursery, the children will remain upstairs during the service. However, today we have something new that some of you may want to test out. Um, we now have a live video feed going into the prayer room. So if you go out these doors and go to the right and go all the way to the end of the hallway, then the prayer room is there, and we have a live video feed. Hi. 
I don't think anybody's in there, but the camera's over there. <laughs> um, and uh, it's in beta. I just want to say that, all right? We're trying to figure it out, and there's some different devices or Wi-Fi networks that we could use. So by the end of this month, we're hoping it will work out. We hope that your kids feel welcome in our service, but if you feel like you need to step out and you don't want to miss the service, then that's something you can take advantage of. And our kids are in the service today, so can we welcome them real quick? Hello, kids. We're glad that you're here. Oh, and I hope everybody knows that on these Sundays, when the kids remain upstairs in the service, we have these coloring packets that are in the teal bin in the back um, by the main entrance here, and it follows the sermon. It, it follows the same topic um, that we're talking about this morning. So you can grab one of those if you haven't gotten one yet, all right? Okay, Luke chapter 10. Um, I'm excited about today's passage. This is one of those teachings of Jesus that's probably one of his most familiar. Even many people who might not have experience with the church or might not know much about Jesus um, often are familiar a little bit with this passage, but even if you're not, that's okay. You're going to learn about it today. It's the parable of the Good Samaritan. A parable is just a story that Jesus told to make a point, and not just any point, but a point about God's kingdom. What he was teaching us is what it looks like when God is ruling. This is what Jesus taught on all the time, the kingdom of God. When we talk about God's kingdom, we're talking about his rulership. We're talking about his influence. Wherever God rules, if it's in a heart or in a home or in a church or in a community, wherever we see the rule of God breaking in, that's where we see his kingdom. Wherever we see the dynamic influence of God breaking into our experience, there we can identify the kingdom. But many times, the experience of the kingdom of God is foreign to us, and this is why Jesus often in his parables taught us how to recognize the kingdom, taught us the characteristics of the kingdom, taught us what we might expect when the kingdom breaks in, taught us how we should live in the kingdom, how we should experience community in the kingdom of God, all of those things Jesus covered in the Gospels, including this parable, um, the story of the Good Samaritan. So we're going to begin in Luke 10, verse 25. We don't do this all the time, but sometimes we stand during the reading of God's word, and for us, that's just a visible reminder that we recognize that God's voice is speaking to us in the word of God. God speaks in many ways, but he speaks to us clearest in the word. And when God speaks, we want to listen. So sometimes we stand just to honor God's word. So I'd invite you to stand this morning, and we're going to read Luke 10, verse 25. It'll be on the screen behind me. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. 
so too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Jesus, we pray that today you would fill us with your mercy. And Lord, help me to do what I can never do on my own, to teach the word of God. And Lord, we just welcome your presence among us. Jesus, when we're in your presence, you change us. And so we welcome that this morning. In your name we pray, amen. You can be seated. My main idea this morning, and it'll be on the screen, is that when we allow Jesus to remove our excuses, we are able to see God's love in the most unusual places. I want to see Jesus' love in the unusual places, don't you? I want to see his love show up in the places that we least expect it. But the pathway there is to allow Jesus to first deal with the excuses that we often make. Many times they feel logical and right in the moment, but they're excuses nonetheless that keep us from loving other people. So here's how this story plays out. This expert in the law comes and he asks Jesus a question, but Luke lets us know what the motive of his question is. He's not asking entirely with pure motives. He's asking Jesus because he wants to test him. This was something that was happening by this point in Jesus' ministry. The experts in the law, the teachers, these are people who knew the word of God. They knew truth. They knew correct doctrine. And they were very suspicious of Jesus and the things that he was doing. And so there's these instances in the scriptures where they would come up to him and they would ask him a doctrinal question, but the attempt was to try to catch him in some kind of heresy to try to get him to say something that was doctrinally incorrect, that was untrue, that would give them reason to attack him, to alienate him, uh, to pursue their agenda against him. And so that's what happened. He asked this question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Often a tactic of Jesus was to answer these bad motive questions with a question. And that's what he does here. He throws the question back at him. Well, you're the expert in the law. You tell me what is written in the law. The man answers the question, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He's quoting out of Deuteronomy, so we know that he knows the scriptures. I think that verse will be on the screen behind me, Deuteronomy 6. And so he quotes the scriptures. He says, this is the first part of the law, and then he quotes out of the, book, the Old Testament book of Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself. So this is a man, he doesn't have to think about it, he doesn't have to pull out his Bible and look it up. The word of God is in his heart, and he's able to correctly summarize the entire law of God correctly to Jesus. And he summarizes it in this, this twofold command that's really the two sides of one coin, to love God, first of all, wholeheartedly, with every part of our being, to exist in relationship with him, we were created for that, to know him and exist in that space and to belong to him. And then out of that, 
to love our neighbor as ourselves because all throughout Scripture, the teaching is that we can identify how sincere our love is for God, not just in our speech and in our language, but in our actions, particularly in the ways that we love other people. So he passes the test. He answers the question correctly, but then he asks another question, and this one is more personal in nature. He says, who is my neighbor? The motivation is given here, too, by Luke. He asks this to justify himself, which lets us know that this guy was working very hard to try to do the right thing, which on the surface looks admirable, except that if you're like me, you know that no matter how hard we try to do the right thing, we mess it up all the time, don't we? And so we have to deal with that. Even if we know the law of God, we know that we don't match up to the law of God many times, and that was the experience of this guy. And so the way that he's trying to deal with this gap is to try to bring the law of God down here a little bit, where it's more in reach. Maybe not down so far that everybody's okay because it feels good to be better than most people, you know? It's like, I'm bad, but I'm not bad as that guy, you know? But to bring it down to the place where he feels like he can live up to it. So the question he asks is, well, who is my neighbor? Love your neighbor as yourself, but let's get into definitions. Who is my neighbor? Because there might be some people that aren't my neighbors, so therefore I'm not required to love them. You see the kind of game that he's trying to play. Well, Jesus answers that question by telling a story, this parable. And it's a story to illustrate a point, the story of the Good Samaritan. But in it, there's two things that Jesus does. First of all, he deals with the excuses of this expert in the law. And secondly, having dealt with the excuses... He teaches that we can expect to find the love of God even in some of the most unusual places. So first of all, he deals with the excuses of this man. Um, he sets up the story like this. He says, there was a man and he was traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. In Jesus' day, there was a road that went from Jerusalem to Jericho. It went through the wilderness. And traveling alone on a road such as that in the day in which Jesus lived, would have been inherently dangerous. There's no cell phones, there's no 911, you know, there's no police force. And so you're traveling alone. If you're traveling alone and unarmed, you are absolutely a target in Jesus' day on these roads for someone to attack you. And that's exactly what happens in the story. Robbers attack this man. They take his stuff, they take his clothes, they leave him naked and half dead on the side of the road. But and this is the way it's worded in Luke, it happened. It's like, it just so happened that somebody started coming down the road. Jesus is telling this story, like, don't you see there is a divine moment that happened because this man is hanging on by a thread. He's going to die in the wilderness unless it just so happens that someone else is coming down the same road. But as it happens, there's another person coming down the road and... It's not just any person, but it's a priest. It couldn't be better. This is one of God's people. You know, I, you know the, the story doesn't go into this much detail, but if the man was like, had some conscious ability left and he saw that this priest just so happened to be walking by at the same time that he was lying there dying, he would have thought, surely God is saving me. God is creating a moment, right? Sent one of his servants to come save me. But that's not what happens. 
the man passes by on the other side of the road. And then, if that weren't bad enough, it just so happened again. Then another person comes down the road, and it's a Levite. The Levites were a tribe in Israel that were called out among the tribes of God to serve in the temple specifically. And so once again, these are people who have a reputation for being close to God and being close to the things of God. This guy's luck or divine providence, it couldn't be any better, right? Because not just one person, but two people have come down the road right in this moment of need, and they're both religious, but he does the same thing. He walks by on the other side and ignores him. Now, why did they do that? See, I think Jesus sometimes told these stories to get our imaginations going. I just wonder, what were the excuses in their mind? You could think of some that might seem legitimate. I mean, these guys, the Levite and the priest, are traveling alone as well. And they are seeing the evidence of a robbery having just taken place. It would be easy to think, you know what, the best thing I can do is get the heck away from here, right? Because I'm going to be next. I need to get off this road and just keep on moving because this is not safe. It could have been that. Um, It could have been that both of these individuals are religious, that both of these individuals know the law of God. And and in, in the Jewish law, there were strict rules about being around dead bodies. This guy was about to die. This is a priest and a Levite who serve in the temple. If this guy dies while he's in their care, it would make them ceremonially unclean so that they wouldn't be able to perform their duties in the temple, at least for a little while. And so they might think, well, I'm putting God first. I'm putting the things of God first. I'm taking seriously my devotion to God. And what has happened here on the side of the road is unclean, so I'm going to leave him alone. You know, I don't know what excuses may have been in the minds of these two individuals in this story that Jesus tells, but Jesus doesn't fill in that blank for us about what the excuse was. And I think it's purposeful that he doesn't fill in the blank because I think what Jesus is telling us is there is no excuse that justifies what this priest and this Levite did to this man lying on the side of the road. See, it doesn't really matter, but I don't know about you, but I've come up with all kinds of excuses before not to help people. Sometimes it's had to do with my own fears. It feels logical to not jump in because I'm protecting myself or the people that I love, and that feels like risk, so I don't want to jump into it. As a matter of fact, when I was in college, um, Chelsea and I served at a church for the time that, that we were in Bible college. Great church. They treated us so well in the years that we were there. But many of the kids in the youth group had very similar backgrounds, and those backgrounds were very entrenched in the church, all right? Which was great, because they knew the Word of God, and there was like a protective factor around that that wrapped around those kids. But then one day, at youth group, and Chelsea and I were youth leaders, or at least I was. I think Chelsea taught Sunday school. I can't remember. But I was a youth leader, and she, and this student showed up And this student was not like the others. Very different story. As a matter of fact, as he told us his story in the last, in in those weeks as he came into the youth group, it was one of the worst stories that I had ever heard. Just, he had been hurt in some of the worst ways possible, and this had affected his mindset and his behavior. 
he was someone who didn't have the ability to hide the wounds that had been inflicted on him. And friends, this caused quite a stir in the church, I can tell you. Because all of a sudden, one of those kids was around our kids. And this created a problem. It culminated in a meeting with the parents and the youth pastor that I was serving under. And these were parents that Chelsea and I really loved, and they had treated us really well. But I remember one of those parents pulling me aside after the meeting, and his kids were in the youth ministry. I'd spent a lot of time investing in his kids. And he said, Joel, we bring our kids to church to keep them safe. Said, and this does not feel safe. Now listen, that comment, I want our kids to be safe in church, right? Isn't that good? And so I don't have a problem with that. As a matter of fact, in our youth and children's ministries, we work hard to keep the environment safe, to make sure that our workers are safe because we understand the risks in the world in which we live. And so I'm okay with that. But you also can't deny that what Jesus is teaching in this parable, what he's pressing against is that kind of, you know, we don't want those people in our church kind of attitude. He's pressing against, you know, us for and no more-ism, you know? He's, he's pressing against, you know, well, if we're on mission, then we're going to lose our kids. He's preaching against that idea. Listen, there is something right about, as adults, if you're a parent or a grandparent or you're working with the kids in our youth and children ministry, there is something right and loving that reflects the gospel about us being protective, right? That is the loving thing to do sometimes, to be protective. But church, this is also true. I want my kids to know that the gospel that has been entrusted to us is a strong gospel. It's not some flimsy thing that as soon as it gets around sin, it withers away and dies. It's not some message that as soon as it's challenged is going to go away. This gospel that we've been given is the power of God for salvation for those who believe. And listen, I want the message that's in my kids to affect the environment that they're in. And if I keep them from those environments all of the time, they're never going to see that this thing has steel in it that does not go back easily. It does not retreat easily. I want my kids to see that the love of God is enough to overcome in the most difficult situations, when the most broken people come into our lives or in our church. I want them to see that Jesus is enough. Amen? So we don't have to hide. We don't have to hide from that. And Jesus is saying, look, there isn't a good excuse under heaven that keeps us from helping people. One thing we learn from this passage is that we are never, as Christ followers, permitted to ask the question, should I help that person? The answer is always yes. If you're passing by someone who's lying on the side of the road and you are in Christ, the answer is always yes. As a matter of fact, this goes back to some of the earliest teachings in Scripture that have to do with human beings carrying the image of God, that God has created us in a unique way to relate to him. And you know what? When I pass up someone lying on the side of the road who's about to die, I, I am ignoring the image of God in them. And even more than that, or equally so, I'm ignoring the image of God in me. 
Because part of what it means for that person to be created in God's image and for me to be created in God's image is that we are inherently responsible for one another in a way that the rest of the creation isn't. Listen, the animal kingdom, animals kill each other all the time. They're not responsible to save one another's lives, but humans are responsible. And it's because we've been given a higher place in the created order. It's how we reflect what God has, has done in us. So we can't ignore each other. The only question we can legitimately ask is, what is the best way to help them? And that, I'm going to be honest with you, is a complicated question many times. You know what I'm talking about? Have you ever tried to help someone and you're not sure the best way to help them? I've helped people before and I have found out a good ways into it that what I thought was helping wasn't helping at all, right? And so then you have to make adjustments. Sometimes I have found that if I'm trying to help, 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 that a dysfunction starts to exist in our relationship. And so one of the best things I can do is to pull back, not to ignore the person, but because that's really what's needed to help them. You know what I'm talking about. These issues can be complicated. One day, I got invited to a debate by my father-in-law. I got invited to a debate. It wasn't a debate with my father-in-law. I got invited to a debate by my father-in-law at a Christian college, and they invited two well-known Christian leaders to come and, and have a discussion, a debate on the issue of poverty in the United States. And friends, both of these individuals knew the word of God. Both of them loved Jesus. But guess what? Scripture, even in this parable, it doesn't lay out for us detailed plans for how to address some of the issues that our culture faces, including, including poverty all the time. This, this book is so much to us. It's the Word of God. It lays out for us God's plan for salvation, but it is not a manual on how to address poverty in the United States in the year 2017, right? But we ought to let it influence our thoughts. And we ought to let it influence um, how we think. And both of these individuals, to their credit, had done that. Both of them knew the word and had let it influence them. But they could not have had more different visions of the right way to go about addressing poverty from a political perspective. They had two such radically different pictures. And they both could quote scriptures, you know, to support their point of view. I think there were four debates and this was, I literally, if I remember correctly, weeks before the Obamacare health care bill got passed that nobody read, but then it got passed. And, and they, and it was weeks before that, all right? And so we're talking about health care for poor people in the United States, and both of these individuals could not have had more different opinions on that subject. And they were able to argue it intelligently and passionately and from the word of God. But you know what I noticed? At different points in that debate, both of those men wept. And you know why they wept? Because they both had poor neighbors who didn't have health care. See, on this, they agreed very much that it's okay to ask and debate how do we help somebody. But it is never okay to ask if we're going to help somebody or should we help somebody. And so, friends, you can have all kinds of opinions on how to address these issues or how to help people, but it is a uniquely Christian responsibility to care for those in need and to never pass them up, no matter what our political stance might be. See what I'm saying? Amen.
All right, so Jesus deals with our excuses, but then having dealt with our excuses, which means there's no excuses to not love people, then he says, he, he takes us into the next part of the parable, which shows us that if we can get past our excuses, we might see love break into the most unexpected places. It's amazing. Jesus makes the main character of this story a Samaritan. Now, if you've been around church and church things, then you might know something of what that means, or this might be new for you today. But either way, it really gets lost on us because of cultural distance, how radical it is that Jesus makes a Samaritan the main character of the story and the hero of the story. So let me remind you who Samaritans were, a group of people that lived north of the Jews in Jesus' day, and really for hundreds of years, it's a long story, but for hundreds of years, there had been political division and distrust. There had been treachery on both sides. Um, There were racial and ethnic divisions between these groups, but really the main division between the Jews and Samaritans, even though it involved politics and race, the main thing that it involved was religion. See, the Samaritans claimed to worship the same God as the Jews did, and and they even did a lot of the same things that the Jews did. They followed the same dietary customs. They observed the Sabbath day, rested one day a week. The men in the community were circumcised. All of these things were things that the Jews did in their observance and devotion to God. And the Samaritans did many of them as well. But there was a big difference. And it was this, that at some point, the Samaritans felt like Jerusalem and the temple in Jerusalem were not the places for them to worship, so they built their own temple north of Jerusalem on a different mountain and kind of formed a new religion around that temple that was similar to Judaism but had some significant doctrinal differences than the Jews did. And some weird things happened. At one point, a Samaritan showed up, and he claimed to almost be like Moses reincarnated on the earth, and he was teaching them things, and they were following him, and all of this just made the Jews think, these folks north of us are weird, you know? They believe weird things, they do weird things, and then you can't deny this, that all throughout the scriptures, Jerusalem is a major theme, is kind of a hot spot of God's activity on earth. And the temple built there was an important part of that theology. So all throughout the Old Testament, the prophets are talking about the importance of Jerusalem. Well, that didn't fit the Samaritans' theology, so at some point they decided to cut out most of the Old Testament from their Bible. They kept the first five books, but any references to Jerusalem, they changed and inserted the name of their mountain into it. Now, I'm telling you this because imagine that a church down the street did this kind of thing. Imagine that church down the street decided, you know, we're going to keep some stuff, but we're going to get rid of some stuff and add in some other things and kind of just make it our own. And we're going to show a disregard for historical Christian teachings, all that kind of stuff. You can imagine the surrounding churches that take the word of God seriously would be like, hey, foul, time out. You know, something is wrong here because you're twisting the truth. Well, it is this kind of person that Jesus makes the main point of the story. So the only way I can like help this sink in is to give you some like current examples of what it might be like if Jesus were telling this story today. So if Jesus were standing in front of a group of Democrats, right, he would say 
that it was a Republican that came down the road and saved this man, right? If Jesus were speaking in front of a group of Republicans, he would say that the two Republicans that walked by ignored him, and then this Democrat came and saved him, right? If he was speaking to some Hillary supporters, it would be Donald J. Trump that would be walking down and saving this man, right? If he were talking to some Trump supporters, it would be Hillary Rodham Clinton, right? Who would be walking down. So you see what I'm saying? If he were standing in front of a group of Christians, it might be two Christians that walked by, but a Muslim who walks down and saves this man. Or if he were talking you know, to a group of evangelicals, it might be a marriage equality activist that was walking down. You see what I'm saying? He's picking a person who everybody kind of knows is an enemy of, of the person that he's talking to, okay? So John, in his gospel, when he's telling a story about a, another story about a Samaritan, he puts in parentheses at some point in John chapter 4, he says, Jews do not associate with Samaritans. I think I have that reference. And so He's just saying, John isn't saying that there's not one Jew and not one Samaritan that's friends with one another, but he's saying everyone kind of knows that these two groups really don't get along with each other, that Jews and Samaritans don't get along. It's kind of like in our culture. We just know that certain groups typically don't hang out, that certain groups typically don't get along with each other, but Jesus picks a Samaritan to be the main character of the story. So what is he doing? Why doesn't he just pick a good Jew? you know, to be the main part of the story. Why, doesn't it, why isn't it the two Samaritans, you know, ignore the guy and then a Jew? Well, here's what I think Jesus is doing. I think there's two answers to that question. First of all, he's showing us that the kingdom of God is more than just right belief. See, this guy that he's talking to is an expert in the law. He, there's no problem with his doctrine. At the beginning of this story, he passed the doctrinal exam with flying colors. Jesus asked him a question, and he was able to say, here's the answer, boom, it's right, right? He got it. No problem there. Now, let me be clear. Jesus is not saying that truth and right belief don't matter. It's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus was a practicing Jew. He worshiped in the temple in Jerusalem, and I'm certain he thought that that was the right place according to the scriptures. I'm certain he thought it was wrong that the Samaritans removed most of their Bibles so that it could fit their own agenda. I'm sure he had a problem with all of that. It's just this guy's problem is not believing the wrong thing. He believes the right things. That's not his issue. His issue is doing the right thing. That's where his issue is. So when Jesus makes a Samaritan the focal point of the story, he cuts to the heart of the issue See, he picks someone whose beliefs are wrong and incorrect to be the hero of the story because he's zeroing in on what this guy's heart needs to see. And it's that life in the kingdom is not just believing the right things. It's doing the right things. Friends, if our theology does not take us into the world, to the places where people are broken and dying, then we need a new theology. Amen? If our conception of holiness makes us think that we have to stay away from the broken and messy situations of this world because we have nothing to offer, then we need to redefine what holiness looks like. If our definition of being the people of God means that we ignore people who need our help, then we need a redefining of what it means to be the people of God. You see what I'm saying? 
So he gets to the heart of the issue here. But then I think there's a second very surprising point, and I think it's that Jesus is showing us that we might expect, and in the age in which we live, we might expect to see God's love show up in the weirdest places. We might expect to show for God's love to break in in some of the most difficult places, some of the places you wouldn't expect it. See, we get accustomed to God's love breaking into an environment like this, a Jesus environment, a churchy environment. And listen, it's wonderful. I love it when he breaks in. But I want to see him break in in the places that seem totally opposite to him. You see what I'm saying? Anthony, if you could come up. That seem totally opposite. That seem like it would be the last place on earth, you know, that God's love would break in. Friends, I think you know this, but the culture in which we live, I'm going to wrap up here in a few minutes, but the culture in which we live is a culture that is constantly trying to force us into camps, human camps, and keep us in those camps. And it tells us that the right thing to do is to not have mercy on anybody who's not in our camp, right? If you don't believe me, just watch the nightly news. And you'll see exactly what I'm saying. And really, the church and the world very often send the same message. There's sometimes, if it's not said explicitly, sometimes it's implicitly said in the attitudes and actions of Christians, well, if they don't believe like us, we really have nothing to do with them. We need to stay away, right? Just hang out. Who's your neighbor? It's just the people who believe the things that I believe, right? But the world does the same thing. The world very often is telling us, that if we really love someone, what we need to do is change our beliefs to what they're demanding we should believe, right? That if we really loved people, then what we would do is abandon our beliefs, abandon the truth, and just fall into whatever it is that the world is messaging to us. Both messages from the church and the world are fundamentally the same. What it's saying is that in order for us to love people, we have to believe the same thing, but Jesus isn't saying that in this passage. He's saying it's possible to love even when there is not common belief. And this, church, listen, this, when it happens, when God's love breaks in in these extraordinary ways, the world takes notice. Friends, if the world is breaking us up into camps, conservative and liberal and Republican and Democrat and white and black and telling us to stay in our camps for our own good, listen, I want to, I want to tell you that you don't belong to a camp if you're in Jesus. You belong to a kingdom. <laughs> Amen. And, and that kingdom and that king is going into all of those camps. The churchy ones, the secular ones, the liberal ones, the conservative ones. Listen, your vision of what God is doing in the world will expand so much when you see that Jesus is not threatened by or confined by the camps that this world creates for us and that are barked on the news every night to us. You'll see God's love show up in the most surprising places. Things will happen that the news thinks it's impossible. Let me tell you a story. I told this story a year ago, but I just feel led to share it again. My father-in-law, I love my father-in-law, and he's a man who knows what he believes. We agree on so much of, of scripture, but there, we don't agree on everything, you know? I've studied theology, he studies theology. We don't agree on every last little thing. We agree on nearly all of it, but not on every single little thing. And, but he knows what he believes. I love it. He never shies back, you know, from what he believes. And he takes the word of God seriously. Well, his church in Ohio, they have a nursing home ministry and they go to 
a nursing home to minister, and there he befriended somebody who is not like him at all. Um, this guy was a hairdresser for many years. He's in his 40s now, and he's in the nursing home because he's dying of AIDS. And he doesn't have any family. And I'm telling you, this guy and my father-in-law could not be more different in theology, political beliefs. And as far as I know, last I heard, neither of them had budged in any direction. But you know what? A beautiful friendship has formed. As a matter of fact, this guy in the nursing home will tell my father-in-law that he's his best friend. Um, my father-in-law brings him gifts. And I know that that relationship isn't just one way. My father-in-law feels like it's mutual. They've genuinely become friends. Now listen, what am I saying? That belief doesn't matter? That we shouldn't talk about doctrine? That right and wrong don't exist? I'm not saying any of those things, but I'm just saying that Jesus removes our excuses when it comes to helping other people, when it comes to loving other people. How does he remove our excuses? Well, friends, here's how he does it very simply. He removed our excuses by saving us when we were in a ditch on the side of the road, when we had nobody to help us, when we were naked and dead, when we, it was like when religion had passed us by, when religious people had judged us, there came Jesus to save us. There he came. He rescued us from that place. You see, Jesus never asks us to do something that he didn't do first. And this is exactly what he did for us, friends. At our worst, we were going to die there. But then he came and saved us. And that's why we can't turn our backs, friends. Not even on our enemies. Jesus did not wait for you to pass a doctrinal exam before he loved you. He did not wait for you to get your beliefs right before he started coming after you. He didn't even wait for you to clean up all your sin before he enjoyed, before he pulled you into the family. You know what I'm saying? He met you where you were at. And friends, if Christian love doesn't look like that, then whatever we're doing, it's not the religion of Jesus.